who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Some of you may think a podcast about representation, it's not for me. But if you're a human being, then the podcast Reppin is for you because we all represent something as people. So are you interested in knowing what you have in common with your favorite actors to best-selling authors and leaders in different genres? On Reppin, you'll meet notable people you think you know, You'll see what they show up for, and you'll see what they represent. It's an insightful, feel-good show, hosted by me, Evelyn. So come and take a listen. Reppin is available wherever you get your podcasts. Realm presents Book Burners. Season 5, Episode 4. Three. Wang Tianguo was tired of losing. Five days ago, and still in her mind, she'd stood on a misty battlefield, directing a retreat. Blood on her shirt, blood in her eyes, as overhead the enormous wrecker marched ceaselessly down and in toward the center of the world, unhurried, untroubled by the flood of violence Wang and her colleagues had loosed upon it. Acrid smoke scorched the air. Torn bodies reeked, a swampy sour mess under the fumes of sulfur and explosives and motor oil. Weapons her team had spent the last 20 years reclaiming from bureau safe houses and museums around the world had bounced off the creature's hide. All the wings they could grow, all the spears they could cast, had no more effect than the conventional missiles. In a storehouse in Chengdu, they'd found a thrice-warded peachwood box marked with signs and symbols warning against the certain doom that would befall any who broke its seals, and on that battlefield, they'd opened it. She shuddered to remember the screams and the glimpse she had not been able to stop herself from taking of the teeth and coils of the thing they'd unleashed. But it rushed into the wrecker's light and burned away. Hu Cheng Hong had brought her in himself, recruited her from the special forces. Wang Jianghuo, a scholar turned soldier who'd spent her life not knowing what that life was for, looking for some reason to give it up. He'd introduced her to the horrors that lurked behind the world, not imperial aggressors, 
but the mouths beneath humanity's feet, waiting to devour anyone who stepped wrong. Powers that could be appeased only through knowledge long since lost. It was their responsibility to rebuild that knowledge, her responsibility. She had failed. Oh, she and her team saved cities. They slew monsters. They were necessary, whatever Grace Chen might say, and they were successful. Even Shanghai, which she still regretted, was necessary. There had been monsters in that square, no matter how Grace insisted they were people. Monsters unleashed in a panic on an unsuspecting city. What else could she have done? They had people to protect. That was what it meant to have a duty. You made the decisions you had to make, and then you lived with what you had done. But as years passed, each crisis led to a larger crisis, and she'd lost control. She was not enough. Her team, which she loved and trained, was not enough. Perhaps they could have been if she had been faster, smarter, stronger, more assured in command. If there had been records or scholars left over from before the revolution. If there had been more funding or more time or more license to cultivate the kind of connections that would help them do the work. She had spent 15 years slowly failing Hu Chen Hong, her country, her people. He had never told her so, of course. He did not need to. After the previous day's meeting, before she went out to train in the disenchantment protocol, he'd cautioned her against hopelessness. Some threats are too large to confront alone. And Grace, of course, had also said as much. Had dared try to comfort her even, without once admitting that had Grace come home where she belonged, this whole mess could have been avoided. That fact, too, twisted in Wong's gut. How could she have been so ineffective that a relic from the old days, a woman who had let herself be trapped by foreign superstition, might be essential to her success? Even Hu Chen Hong was disappointed in her. He'd gone so far as to offer Grace Chen command of Wang's bureau if she'd just come home. But she had to put all that behind herself now. The world was in danger. Strong methods were called for, compromise, and common cause. And now they had a chance. She'd scorned the disenchantment protocol at first, but it worked. She'd practiced for hours until she understood the logic of the chant of the circle's geometry, and after the drills broke up, she'd gone to train her squad. She had placed a grail within the circle and watched it become a cup. A spirit-catching mirror lost its gloss. With enough of a team, with enough power, perhaps they could not just slow the records down, but draw the magic from them. Drain their fire until they collapsed on themselves. She scratched the circle diagram on the arm of her chair with her thumbnail as she watched the society's renegade archivist take the stage. She had uncovered some new secret, she said, a weakness of the wreckers, a flaw they could exploit, a hole in their defenses. At this point, Wang Jiangguo would believe anything. Hu Chenhong sat next to her, straight as ever, and focused. Nearly every culture, Asante said, has stories of a garden. Wang frowned, but kept listening. Brahma sleeps inside one, and from his navel springs the lotus that blooms to create the world. There is the Greek concept of the Amphalos, the world's navel, the wellspring of creation. And, of course, the Abrahamic faiths have a garden all their own. 
She raised her eyes, not to some skyward observers, Wong thought, but to the chapel roof overhead, to Adam and the big old bearded pointing god. Myths are truths filtered down through generations. On the level of history where we live now, these garden tales are a cultural memory of hunter-gatherer times or of a pre-desertification Sahara. But that's only on our level of history. We've envisioned our world as a mechanism created and managed by the angels. But if Hana and her allies controlled our planet in any meaningful way, why could they not alter it at their whim? When Hana wanted to destroy London, she had to use a complicated ritual. She had to enter our realm to affect it. Later, when the Angstrom sought access to the Alexandrian pillar, we encountered what I took to be a machine, at least that's the formatism when I used it, a machine that upheld and sustained the world. I stopped the Angstroms from abusing the machine, but then Hannah appeared and announced she would end the world. She was standing right in front of the machine. Why not use it? Why summon the records? Our research suggests that the world is not fundamentally mechanical. It was grown. We often talk about the world we know as an island in a sea of magic, but it's not an island of earth and sand. It's a mangrove tree, a big, tangled structure of roots and branches grown from a single seed. What I took for the world's pillars are its branches, really. The machine I found in Alexandria was like a fruit, a manifestation of the outermost layer of growth. Magic is flowing back into the world because the organism is failing. The wreckers are drilling down and in toward the center of the world, toward the garden. And when they get there, they'll rip the garden up from its roots. The images locked in Wong's mind. The garden, the roots, the wreckers come to weed. So we get there first. She'd spoken out loud, out of turn, and Hu Chen Hong's eyebrows raised as he turned to her, but she saw it now clearly, the path to victory. Get to the garden first and use the disenchantment protocol to cut off the link between the human world and magic. Save the world, not just for the short term, but for good. But how? Asante did not miss a beat at the interruption. We have found a secret path into the garden. Mystics in a dozen cultures recount taking spiritual journeys, or we thought they were spiritual, through the mouth of a great winged serpent at the dark of the moon into the heart of the world. Some descriptions of the great winged serpent are remarkably detailed, detailed enough, in point of fact, that we've been able to identify a likely candidate for the serpent in question. The dragon under the Eyaklak Lajokic volcano. In a prior layer of history, she was quite active as a guide. We make our way to the garden, to the dragon's mouth, and when we're there, this was it. One could feel the answer sure as a knife in her hand. Free the world from magic forever. Disenchant it all. Save everyone at once. Once we're there, Asante said, we plant a seed. Wang wasn't the only one in the room who spoke up at that point. A chorus rose from the seated delegates, astonishment, confusion, questioning. 
The archivist took a cloth bag from her pocket, and from that bag she drew a seed a little larger than the kernel of an apricot. It should have been a comical moment, the archivist and the simple rustic seed at the heart of all this power and wealth and hardened ancient empire. But no one laughed. The seed would not let them. It did not glow, it did not pulse or sing. It lay there in Asante's palm, the single fact of the world. As Wang's eyes rested on it, she felt as if her life were fading away, no more than a shadow on a wall, insubstantial as a rumor. The blood on her shirt, the screams in her ears, memories of death and sex and the buck of a gun in her hand, all meaningless before the thing Asante held. And yet, it was just a seed. I drew the seed from the Alexandrian pillar. The wreckers are coming for the world because it is dying, sinking into the waters of magic and polluting those waters as it rots. We'll beat them to the garden, plant the seed, and grow a new tree to stop the old one from sinking. We'll take control of our destiny, become the tenders of our own garden, and the wreckers will retreat. But the voyage will take time. That's where you all come in. All your conventional and magical forces. We'll need a small dedicated team to make the voyage. I propose the former team three plus myself as a core. But we'll need all the strength and wisdom you can offer. And yes? Wang didn't realize she was standing until Asante turned toward her. This can't be the right way. It is. You're relying on a power we don't understand to fight off yet another power we still don't understand. You taught us the disenchantment protocol yesterday. Why not use that in the garden? Because the world needs magic. The garden is the heart and foundation of our world, and it needs magic to function. I'm proposing a heart transplant. You're proposing removing the patient's heart entirely. But if we get to the roots, can't we drain the magic away? Including the wreckers? That's not how they work. Magic isn't an artifact of our world. It surrounds our world and makes it up. You don't even understand what the seed does. I do. We found mentions of it in 50 texts from all seven continents. I don't pretend that this is an ideal option. It's a long way to Iceland. There are chances for failure. And our success depends on our ability to hold off the wreckers until our team reaches the garden. But this is the best option we see. And we would like your help to pursue it. And there, in her hand, tempting still, the seed, like a promise out of time. A reality Wong could not deny. Another thing shaping her life that she could not understand or control. Before she could respond, Hu Cheng Hong cleared his throat and stood. You have our support. And while Wang was still boggling, the Alexandrian scholar Yusef stood as well, his hands wide to indicate his compatriots. And ours. More voices joined the chorus. Asante, satisfied, closed her hand around the seed and returned it to its bag in her pocket. As others spoke up to ask questions, to pledge aid, to consult on timelines and planning, Hu Cheng Hong, Wang's mentor, friend, boss, turned to her 
to offer support, maybe, or advice, or even a gentle admonition. But Wong turned before he could speak and left. She marched out of the old room with its strange paintings and its stench of candle flames and petrified alien culture. The halls were empty. She did not know this place. She did not know herself. She kept walking. A voice called her name, Grace Chen's voice. One more thing Wong could not bear. She walked on to give her team the news. In the Team One armory, Tavani Shaw passed Sal a pair of gloves with what looked like tiny teeth on the palms. Climbing gloves adhere to any surface. Just twist your palm to unlock. Should come in handy in Iceland, especially if you're going caving under a volcano. The gloves seemed to be made of leather and were too tight when Sal started to try them on, but when she opened her mouth to say something, they wiggled down onto her hands. The teeth flexed. You're being very helpful. Shah shrugged and turned back to the armory racks. Magical weapons hung around them from cold iron hooks, swords and spears and chains and weird wavy knives that probably had a name in some language Sal didn't speak. Sal had never been in this room before. She hadn't known this room existed before Shah came to her and told her to follow. Don't suppose you want any more swords? Sal eyed the pile. I think we're good, thank you. Shame. I guess we'll think up a use for them. No sense leaving them to dangle here any longer. I have an extensible spear around here somewhere. And another pair of wings. Sal tugged the gloves off, fingertip by fingertip, and set them down palms touching, because magic tended to have a sick sense of humor. They crowned the pile of artifacts she hadn't been able to stop Team One's leader from giving her so far. Armor, warding bracelets, wands to calm the wind, and combs that could grow forests. Sal hadn't spent much time with Shaw. The woman was broad and built and dangerous, and she moved bluntly through the world. They'd ended up on the opposite side of so many fights, and here Shaw was, loading Sal for bear. Sal remembered some of the weapons hanging on those walls. Shaw had used them against her before, back when she'd been possessed. You don't seem upset. She could tell as soon as she spoke that those were the wrong words to say. Sure, the world was winding down. No sense dwelling on how slim their chances were or what was yet to come. Now, at least they had a chance. Shaw looked up from her weapons and seemed genuinely confused. What do you mean? She shouldn't have said anything. And she especially should not explain what she'd meant. But damn it, words were like these weapons. They wouldn't do any good here on the wall. You've given so much, you and your team. And now you're being sent out against the wreckers. And we know you can't win. You're buying us time. It doesn't seem fair, leaving you here while we go try for the Hail Mary. Shaw hefted a thick leather belt in her hands, shrugged, and tossed it on the pile. What did you expect? We're Catholic. Sal spent a solid 20 seconds trying to parse what Shaw might mean, theologically speaking. Wait, did you just make a joke? Shaw left the racks behind. She leaned against the table beside Sal, both of them staring past the racks into space. 
They were close to the same height, but Shaw had a few inches of biceps and about six of shoulder on Sal. She half smiled, the first time Sal had seen that particular expression on that particular face. She turned to make sure she hadn't imagined it, but the smile was already gone. Brooks, none of us joined Team One for glory. We're soldiers here. Any of us could die on any engagement. No matter how good you are, that's how it works. We're up against powers beyond our scope. Just like every soldier in every fight throughout history, and especially in the last 150 years or so. We're here to do what needs to be done. And now we need to hold the line. I have fought with you and against you, remember? If anyone can do this, it's Team 3. And we'll give you all the time you need. Sal remembered the battlefields where she'd seen Tavani Shaw fight. London, Texas, Ireland, Rome. And those were just a shadow of the action Shaw had seen in the last year and what she'd face in the coming weeks. You know, Bouchard once tried to recruit me for Team 1. Another first. She heard Tavani Shaw laugh. The other woman's hand settled on her shoulder, heavy and firm. You're a great cop, Brooks, but you beat the world's worst soldier. The contact was gone then, and Shaw straightened and breathed out that moment's quiet with the air in her lungs. Come on, let's get this stuff out to the van. Wang Chiangkuo paced her bare room. She'd packed her duffel with a few pieces of light weaponry and armor, two changes of uniform, and a single pair of shoes. The rest of her gear waited with her team in an artist's workshop in Trastevere. If the summit went poorly, their plan had been for Wang and Hu to fight their way across the river and hold the hill. No one had known what to expect. Scheming, treachery, hope. She still was not certain what they'd found. Her only remaining personal item was a knife lying on the desk, a dagger with a three-edged blade like a pyramid and a pommel in the shape of a demon's snarling face. She'd liberated that dagger from a Gansu temple during her first year with the Bureau. Most blades of the type were purely ceremonial, but this held an edge and a point. She'd cut monsters with that knife, pierced demons, and watched them bleed gouts of rank black fluid. She sat before the desk, watching the blade. In Trastevere, her team waited for her signal. They understood the mission. Understood too well how the machinations of command could undermine the best strategy. Discipline was vital, and loyalty. But sometimes you had to dictate reality with your actions, rather than the other way around. Why was she waiting? She knew what had to be done. But there was a difference between knowledge and will. There was no certainty in this. There never was in war. So she paced and did not realize she was waiting until she heard a knock on the door. Come in. Did Hu Chen Hong always look this tired? She remembered a man with the same gray peppered hair, the same lines on his face, but with shoulders more straight and eyes that had seen less. He had never been a man for small talk and pleasantries. Dad, at least, had not changed. I should have come earlier. I have pledged our support to the society's efforts. I see you are upset. 
This is not the right path. For the first ten years they'd worked together, she had struggled with the informality he'd asked of his subordinates, eschewing rank and modifiers. But she'd slowly come to understand his logic. None of them understood the magic they worked with or the monsters they fought. Insisting on the privileges and respect due to rank would only suffocate good ideas. If only he'd remember that now and listen to her. That seed may have the effect Asante claims, but the world it will make won't be our world. She'll remake reality around us, and what sort of world will she shape? I want stability, not the chaos of an unknown future. Stability is good, Hu Cheng Hong nodded. But do we know what true stability means? We have thought for our whole lives that we stood on dry, solid land, when in fact we are standing on a boat at sea. Now that sea is rocked by a storm and our boat is sinking. If we wish our boat to be stable, we must start by being honest about what a boat is and what stability means for a boat. Asante knows. I do not see a better option than to support her. There must be a better way. Why not reach for it? So long as the world exists, we can seek advantage within it. But if the world does not exist, there is nothing left to win. We face long odds. You and I saw that back in Gansu. There is no point fighting over how to fight if it will only make those odds longer. The archivist and some of our own best scholars have offered their conclusions. We gain nothing by fighting them. This is a mistake. I can't let you use my team to destroy everything we know, everything we fought for all these years. There must be some other way. We have no time to find it. And I will not let more cities fall while we argue. But he talked through her, over her. We must be united. You've seen what the wreckers can do. You know what we've lost. We have to try. Trust me now, please. We need you. But if you cannot join yourself to this cause, I will ask for you to remove yourself from command. So you can appoint Ms. Chen in my place? His expression darkened. We both wanted her on the team back in Tibet. I offered what I had to give and she turned me down. And I thought that was the end of it. I did not think you held a grudge. But I need your answer, Wang Jiangguo. Are you with us? She met his gaze. What can I say, sir? We have to win. He set his hand on her shoulder and smiled the way she remembered from when they had both been young. She stepped in then, unexpected, swift, and hugged him. He tensed at first, reflexes of military propriety kicking in, but they were alone in a far-off land, and they'd known one another 20 years, and the world was ending. It's okay, he said. He smelled of cigarettes and leather. She tried to fix that smell in her mind. He had given her a direction in life, a purpose, and she would see it through. Her hand sank to the desk. 
Grace stalked through the guest dormitory halls toward Wang Jiangkuo's room, hands deep in her pockets, still trying to think what she would say. Obviously, Wang was upset. She barely knew Asante and did not trust her. She'd lost people in action against the wreckers, and of course, that hurt. Grace did not want to go to her now, to drag her back through fresh wounds, but Sansoni needed allies to delay the wreckers, which meant they needed the help of Wang's bureau. And after all these years, no one in the society knew Wang quite so well as Grace. So here she was. Even though Sal had told her not to go, had pointed out quite correctly that life was short and there were far too many assholes in it. But this was everyone's last chance for everything. She might as well try. We are on the same side, she thought, rehearsing what she would say to Wong. I don't bear you any ill will, and we need to work together to get through this. The part about not bearing her any ill will wasn't true, strictly speaking, but she could pretend for a little while. She had to, or else she'd only make this mess worse. Okay, no time like the present. She turned the corner. Wang Jiangkuo's door was ajar. Grace knocked, no answer. Called the other woman's name. Still nothing. She pushed the door open and saw the body and the blood. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, and is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Plus, it's less expensive than takeout, which honestly was my go-to when I just couldn't or didn't have time to cook a proper meal. So whether you're hoping to cut down on spending, being more intentional with your meals, or just want to save time, Factor can help you get after your goals. Besides their meals, which I have to say, everyone has been delicious, they also have more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled and feeling good all day, like breakfast and midday bites. They've even got fresh-pressed juices and protein shakes, and I've really enjoyed their variety pack of wellness shots. I love anything with ginger and cayenne. Factor is also flexible with their plans, so you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Head to factormeals.com slash burners50 and use code burners50 to get 50% off. That's code burners50 at factormeals.com slash burners50 to get 50% off. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. 
Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Four. Blood still dripped from Wang Chengkuo's hand. She left a trail of it through the halls, drops gathering on her limp fingers to fall as she walked. She knew what she had done, understood the costs of the path she'd set herself upon. Only cowards and failures retreated from their choices into a haze of dream. The knife had gone into the old man so easily. She could not have left him alive. He knew her team's procedures, knew their supply stores, the weapons caches across Europe they'd seek out. He would have helped them stop her. She had her reasons. But reasons didn't kill the fear. Sometimes you had good reasons for a low open parachute jump, but still it left you tumbling in freefall, terrified, waiting for the right moment to pull your cord. She had been nothing when he found her, a scholar turned soldier. And he asked her, would you like to see a magic trick? But what he showed her was not a trick. She'd followed the wreckage deeper into the society's chambers, torn wallpaper and dried gore and broken light fixtures and tunnels. The recent attacks had struck the society's heart, and all its essential functions had been moved away to safer quarters for repairs, save the most dangerous books in Asante's archives. Those, of course, were not left undefended. They'd stationed Swiss guards, and the door itself was locked with heavy bolts, a combination lock, an unpickable mechanism. Two bodies lay outside the archives now, and the door stood open. Five years ago, in an overgrown temple in Tibet, Wang Jiangkuo had found, resting on a small platform in the middle of a lake of mercury, a charm on a chain, a simple skeletal hand that would open any lock it touched. She stood at the end of a long, long row of shelves. Most of these books were in Roman alphabetic script or Greek or Arabic, some Chinese, some Sanskrit. There were large books and small scrolls and tablets with leather covers to keep the magic in. Small typed note cards named each text, listed dates and circumstances of collection, sometimes more helpful, sometimes less. Bombay, Death Goddess, 1883. Marrakesh, Midas Contagion, 1632. Cuyahoga Valley, Belial, 1913. Rarely more. These were the fruits of the society's research, the spoils of its centuries-old secret war. 
Somewhere, no doubt, lay records describing the book's content, passing their secrets on to future generations, warning them against their forerunner's folly. Advantages her bureau never had. At the end of the row of shelves, there was a large case made from heavy ballistic glass. Inside it lay a book with a cracked cover that centuries ago had been painted and embossed and worked with gold leaf. The leaf had all flaked away. Dark, rusty stains blotted the leather. After so long, even the parchment label was illegible. It had been retyped, a best guess. Jerusalem, question mark? Gospel, question mark? She broke the glass with the palm lover knife and opened the book with her bloody hand. Pink skies surged within. She turned away without looking as the book's contents burgeoned and swelled and sang songs and made her knees weak and her gut churn and blood tears run from her eyes. She walked down the long alley between bookshelves and every few steps she grabbed a book from the shelves, opened its cover, fanned its pages and tossed it over her shoulder. She snapped locks, broke seals on scrolls, pulled shrouds off clay tablets and tossed them without looking back. She did not hear them fall. She left the door open without looking at the chaos that grew behind her and climbed the stairs out to the world. Sal ran into Liam in the hallway near the archives. He was half-dressed and carrying a sword and looked as if he'd been asleep five minutes ago, or at least not planning to do much running through the halls. Of course, he slept with his sword nearby. Sal, what's going on? She found her balance. Didn't Grace text you? No. Then what are you doing here? Francis and I were uh, together. How many men could sound sheepish when they were half naked holding a sword? Liam, I, I know you guys are having sex. Everyone knows you're having sex. What are we, 15? Well, well, fine. We were having sex. And then he jammed a thumb over his shoulder and she saw Francis wearing a robe hovering. I thought you could only hover when there's a lot of magic around. She nodded. Yep, still true. Shit. She should have slept with her sword. Come with me. They followed through the wreckage of the society halls. Francis hovering had an easier time with the terrain than Liam, who seemed to have forgotten shoes. He'd remembered his sword, though, naturally. Wong's killed her boss. Grace said her trail led to the archives... They turned the corner toward the archives in time to see Grace fly through the air and slam into a fresco, which cracked and rained plaster angels over the broken tile. Grace! Sal ran to her, grabbed her arm, helped her up. She was breathing heavily, her teeth bared in a fierce snarl as her bones knit. She barely seemed to notice Sal, or Liam or Francis, for that matter. And as the scene took shape, Sal realized why. The Engstrom's monsters had trashed the archive's main room, shattering the shelves and desks and equipment that once packed the chamber Sal still thought of as their headquarters. The minor additional wreckage of Asante's folding chairs and tables and stacks of reference books did not, by itself, make the scene shocking, but the enormous pink ropey arms spreading from Asante's secure vault did a damn good job of that on their own. The arms lashed chaotically through the air, smashing tables and wrenching iron railings to pieces. Their claw tips dug trenches in the hardwood floor. Several arms had pierced the archive stone walls and strained to pull a great plug of pink fleshy matter out from where it had stuck in the vault door. 
Gnashing purple teeth filled the flesh plug's mouth, and its gullet opened onto a vast sky full of pink worms. A Swiss guard's helmet was caught in between the third and fourth rank of its teeth. The arms surged, stone tore, and a few more feet of flesh plug squelched out into the archives. As it moved, other squirming things followed. Disembodied hands climbed the walls like spiders, middle fingers tasting the air for prey. A sort of square distortion entered the stone walls and started not so much digging as unfolding. Mouths opened wherever the distortion spread, like one of those stupid paper fortune tellers Sal used to make at school, gaping and snapping shut to tell preordained futures, where you'd live, who you'd marry. None of the futures she'd been told to expect looked anything like this. The room was changing, the dome flowering, opening up. Sal looked at the others and at Grace, and back at the monsters digging out of the vault, blobs and spreading colors and mouths with wings and malevolent arrangements of angles. Wong had let the monsters go, to cover her trail, to kill them all, just because she wanted to. And upstairs in the Vatican City, still sleeping, lay the delegates Sansoni had called together to try to save the world. Not to mention, well, the Pope. Sal sort of liked this Pope, too. One of the lashing pink legs had snapped off a nearby piece of iron railing. It would do, for now. Sal grabbed it and looked to Grace. Got any tips? Grace tried twice to gather her breath. Try not to let it hit you. It's got a mean left hook. Which one's the left? Grace shrugged. Thanks. She made herself look at it again, to take in the size of this thing, its arms filling the chamber, its mouth twice her height, still growing as it pulled free of the confines of the vault. The geometrical distortion split the ceiling open like the petals of a flower, and somewhere overhead, there was the night. Sal hefted the iron rod like a baseball bat and looked to the others. Liam nodded. Francis, Grace... If Asante were here, she would have told her to run, to hide. But if they didn't get out of this, not a very big if, it seemed at the moment. Asante could carry out the mission. Sal thought ruefully of the van Shah had helped her pack with all those weapons and all that gear. True, Sal barely knew how to use any of it, but she might have surprised herself. Let's go. They ran forward together, and Sal realized that Grace was running no faster than the rest of them. They'd always gone into battle together, but it had been a long time since they'd gone into battle together. As the flesh plug's mouth gaped ahead of her and the air filled with whip-fast ropey arms like long, thin, tooth-lined tongues, she thought, I could get used to this. Then something struck her in the back. She fell and thought, oh, shit then skidded and through the ache in her skull thought further, ha, I'm still alive. Then she looked up and realized what had knocked her over. Some part of her still wasn't used to the life she lived now, the new names it gave you for things and people, so even with all she knew, her first thought was still, the archives are full of angels. But her first word was Shaw. Tavani Shaw and her soldiers swooped through the air, wings spread from their backs. One wore a flaring cloak and hooked chains that seemed to move with a mind of their own. Another bore a flaming sword. Shah herself held a spear made of lightning. Four Team One soldiers brandished overlapping shields that projected a blue wall of force between Team Three and the monstrosities pouring forth from the vault. Get out of here, 
Shaw shouted over the roar of falling rock and opening ceiling. The vault monster screeched, and behind it, as it wriggled out into the world, Sal heard another sound, a sly, insinuating music. A song she could almost place, a melody that tingled on the tip of her tongue. Her cheek was wet. She touched it, and her fingertips came away red. The monster had almost wriggled free, and there was something behind it. Something worse, ready to come out. Grace fought toward Sal across the battlefield. More Team One soldiers swept in, bearing halberds of ice and whips of thorn and a few good proper rifles, just the same. Liam cut off a tentacle at the wrist with an apologetic glance to Francis, who was too busy trying to trap another one of the pink beast's limbs in a golden web. We can't leave you, Sal shouted back. Two arms tried to catch Shaw, and she severed them both, then drew a pistol with her spare hand and shot a third. Brooks, we talked about this. This is our job. Now go do yours. Sal had been a good cop back in the day. Sure, there were better ones on the force, but she knew an order when she heard one. Shaw was fighting a losing retreat with all her strength and skill and daring. She'd signed up to save people. Now, the best way Sal could help her was to stay saved. Liam was waiting for Sal to lead. Grace, too. Shaw was busy fighting. Sal didn't want to distract her, but she shouted, good luck, up into the fray and offered a salute. And maybe Shaw waved back at her, or maybe that was just a signal to the two Team One soldiers rushing in with a grenade launcher. You heard the lady? She told Liam and Grace and Francis. We have a job to do. And as the bleeding music rose around them and the stars shone down for the first time on the Vatican archives, they ran. Five. Rome burned. Sal watched in the rearview mirror as they drove away. Pink sky spread over the Vatican. Helicopters blurred over the dome of St. Peter's. That's the Pope leaving, Manchu said. His voice sounded hollow. Grace reached out and took his hand, and so did Sal. Asante, beside him on the bench, touched his back. Liam cursed as he drove. His eyes kept flicking to the rearview mirror. Perry lay in the center of the van, still sleeping. He had not woken up since Francis reached the van, dragging him behind her on a levitated gurney. Bat-winged monsters circled in the night fighting with smaller dots of brilliant light, Team One guarding everyone's retreat. Ropes of pink flesh twisted through the blushing sky. There would be screams, she knew, but they were too far away for any to reach her ears. Asante held her fist clenched around the seed. After all her battles with the society, her failed attempts to reform it from within, the small changes she'd been able to win in the face of enormous odds, she sat here and watched the city fall. It had fallen before, of course. If any city knew how to fall, it was this one. She could have looked away. Any of them could have. They had come to Rome alone, one by one, when they were different people, when they were young. And now they were leaving together for what might be the last time. She'll be waiting Grace said. Wong has a team. She has a goal. She knows where we're going. 
Shah was back there, fighting to guard their retreat. Sal wondered which of those bright dots was her. While she was wondering, one of them winked out. We'll get there first, Sal said. We have a job to do. Menchu's hand tightened around hers, and the road led them away. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Bookburners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>